before I pray, I want to share with you a little bit about where we're going this fall as a church, and then I'm going to share a little bit about where we're going to be going today, and then I will pray. You know, when I was away on my break this past summer preparing for the ministry year ahead, uh, one of the things that struck me as I was thinking and praying about our church is how blessed we are at Scottsdale Bible at being a large, stable, multi-generational church. Let me repeat that. We are a large, stable, multi-generational church. And so unlike quite a few mega churches in the nation that are newer upstarts and tend to be more one-dimensional in their generational makeup, Scottsdale Bible Church has a somewhat unique position of being a 55-year-old church that now incorporates, watch this, a minimum of five to six generations in those that call this place home. We have those from the greatest generation, 1945 and before, those from the baby boom generation, 1946 to 1964, those from what we call the Generation X or the Busters from 1965 to 1982, those from the millennial generation, 1982 to 2000, and then those from what I'm going to call, because we haven't named them yet, the next generation, which is about 2001 to present. And obviously by generation, I'm using rough dates here. Don't get hung up on that. A generation is best defined as when a person is born to when that generation starts having babies themselves, right? That's a generation. And so to simplify it, I use about an 18-year span for this, which many demographers do, and it seems to collate even fairly well with the Bible. But nonetheless, even if we quibble about exact dates of a particular generation, the vast majority of demographers identify the greatest generation, the boomers, Gen X, millennials, and again, whatever we're going to call the next next generation as the five major generations in culture today. And Scottsdale Bible Church, you guys need to see this, has a fair share, has a strong representation of each of these five generations in our church. If you look at the main worship center and then walk over to the chapel and then go over to the venue and then go to Mountain Valley or Cactus and then go to our youth ministry and then go to our children's ministry, you'll see what I mean. We are truly have been blessed with being a multi-generational church that has done a pretty good job of retaining extended families over the years. And as I realized all this this summer, I felt strongly led to do a series of messages on this. And I'm going to call the series Generations, and it begins next weekend. And so to give you a sense of what we're going to be doing, look up here on the screen and check this out. I think it might excite you for what we're going to do over the next couple of months. It's a privilege uh, for me today to talk about the greatest generation. The baby boomers, it was the first generation where we thought that the world would be better over time. But my generation was looking for more and seeking everything and trying to find answers for themselves. I know for the millennial generation, we were too young to really understand what we were getting ourselves into. Like we focus on school, but like we, want to like hang out with our friends a lot. So we always thought that, you know, there's always going to be a better day. What we realized is that wasn't the case at all. All this new technology that was coming, 
was gonna mean that people didn't have to work as hard anymore. All it really has done is make people greedier and hungrier for more and work even harder. I see a lot of people like walking out of school, they like get out their phones. How do we adapt to my kid can have this whole another life electronically that I don't know about? And then the kids know I can have this whole other life electronically that my parents don't know about. The things that we think are gonna break us are really the things that make us. This is going to be an incredible series for us. It'll be a series that if you've ever been thinking of inviting somebody to your church, now is the time to do it. You know, the Bible, as many of you know, has a lot to say about different generations, from young men to old men, from young women to old women, from babies to teenagers. And so for the sake of unity and outreach, those are our two goals. How do we stay unified together? And then how do we reach uh, our, our generations in this community? We're going to talk about each generation over the next couple of months and see what God says to us all. And we're even going to have a surprise visit from Schrader on week two. And I always love it when Schrader's here. He's going to talk to us about the greatest generation. It really is going to be a great series. And I hope you pray for me in our church as we enter into it. Now, today, however, is what we call a one-off message. We're in between series. It's an open topic weekend. And I've chosen to address some of the issues surrounding the upcoming election. And I want to be really clear up front. Hear me. I am not going to tell you who to vote for. And this is not Jamie getting all political. I simply want to do two things with you today. First, I want to talk to you about some values and issues that should be important to any Christ follower in all areas of life, even when we cast a ballot. And then the second thing I want to do is I want to talk to you very briefly about unity and what unity can and should look like for a church like ours, no matter what happens in November. So values and unity is where we are going to go today. And I'm going to need God's help to talk about both of those things. So what am I going to do right now? I'm going to pray. Would you guys bow with me? Father, uh, I humbly bow before you, and so do these dear people here and at our campuses and venues, and we ask that you would have your way right now with our church, with each of our ind individual hearts and minds. And God, we pray that as we talk intelligently and maybe even passionately about what your word says, God, would you nudge some of us in the direction that you want us to go in? And Lord, for the rest of us that might be where you want us, God, cement that place. Cement that place at the foot of your cross. I pray, God, that you would speak to us now, and Lord, give us wisdom and unity in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. Some of you didn't say amen, but that's okay. Now, <laughs> I need to let you know right up front something that's very, very important, and that is that your pastor, me, is a values voter. I'm a values voter. In other words, I do not vote primarily for personality. I don't vote primarily for temperament. Believe it or not, I don't even vote primarily in a partisan way. Never have. I vote in line with the values that God has instilled in me over 35 years of following his son, Jesus. Hear this. I vote on issues that are based on the values that from God's word I hold dear. 
And you need to know, I've always been like this. This is my ninth presidential election that I'll be voting in since 1984 when I cast my first ballot. And I can tell you categorically and without apology that the primary thing that has driven me every four years is a carefully constructed biblical list of issues that stem from my values as a follower of Jesus. And though this list might change and even grow slightly over the years, depending on what biblical values the culture around me has politicized, it is nonetheless a values list that drives me more than anything else. And all I'm going to do today is share with you my particular list this year. And I want to make a couple of very important comments before I do. First, you guys need to know this is my list of the things that I believe the Bible speaks about when it comes to some of the issues that our culture is wrestling with. And you might have a somewhat different list. You might not. But if sharing my list helps you, one, to become a more values-laden voter yourself, or two, allows you to think about your own list, then I gotta tell you right now, I've succeeded. I'm not necessarily trying to talk you into anything today. I'm simply trying to help you become a more value-centered voter as a Christian. Here's the way I see it, because I really don't like talking about politics, especially publicly. And as you guys know, I hardly ever do. But get this, I don't even think today I'm talking about politics. See, here's what's happening in our culture. This is the political realm. This is the spiritual or our Christian lives realm. And, and, and what happens is, is that sometimes culture moves in our direction and, and culture tends to make an issue of values that God has already put in his word thousands of years ago. And so there's an overlap that occurs between our political slash cultural world and our Christian world as they, and I say this fun lovingly, hijack some of the values that you and I hold dear and make those issues. And when that happens, I got to tell you, as your pastor, I would think you'd be disappointed in me if I didn't speak into that. Amen. I mean, I, I, I am a moral person, not holier than thou. You guys know that, but, but I do have values. I have morals. They stem from my walk with God. And, and when the political realm uh, takes those same values and starts talking about it and even asks us to vote on this, then I ain't getting political. I'm just defending the values that I believe the Lord has given me. So that's what's going on. Secondly, I, I, I warn you that my list this year is somewhat complex. It's somewhat complex. In other words, some of you are going to be tempted initially when you see my list to think that this is just a sneaky way for me to tell you who to vote for. You could not be further from the truth. I challenge you, hang in there with me through my entire list of six things, and you will see that as my wife said to me this week, there is something in here to offend everyone. So I need you to hang in there with me. Because I'm telling you, I have grown and matured over the years. I have. And our culture, I know you guys all know this, has gotten much more complex. And so as I've given a lot of thought and prayer this, this year to it, it, it it's, a, it's a somewhat different and morphing list. And, and here's the deal. My list will not necessarily answer all your questions. 
In fact, it may raise more questions for you than when you walked in. But I believe that these are the things that you and I, at minimum, need to wrestle with and consider in any public election before us. And then one last quick thing before we dive in, and this kind of collates with what we just talked about. Um, I have very little email bandwidth in my life. And so if you wish to email me and dialogue with me about these things, I just need to let you know, I, I have no capacity. Quite frankly, I don't even have a desire to enter into an extended discussion with 7,000 people in my church over these things. And so you can email me. I have an email address here at the church. I read every email that comes into the church, and I read it with my assistant and my pastoral associate every Tuesday morning. We sit down for an hour or whatever it takes, and they help me in answering some of the emails. And so you're welcome to do that, but please understand beforehand that I don't have a tremendous amount of email bandwidth given my current schedule, but that's not what this is about. This is again about, and I need to be clear on this, getting us all thinking about what God might want each of us to value as we enter into November this year. And that's really between you and the Lord. So with this said, there are six primary values that come directly out of God's revealed word that I will personally be considering this year. And here are the first three. I'm gonna give them to you in blocks, two different blocks of three. The first three are what I call SHL family and religious freedom. This should not surprise you. SHL stands for sanctity of human life, family, and then religious freedom. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which is not a fan of protecting the unborn, but maintains solid research on this subject, by 2008, there had been almost 50 million aborted babies in America since Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. And although the annual number has been decreasing moderately over the last 30 years each year, and that's a good thing, there are still at least 1 million babies lost each year, which puts the current estimate just slightly below 60 million babies since 1973 when abortion on demand was legalized. And I got to tell you guys, this is not a complicated issue. God declares all of life to be precious and holy, and God declares that life begins at conception. That is not debatable within the scriptures. Psalm 139 makes it clear that God knits together each baby in its mother's womb and that that unformed baby is considered by God to be a creation from the get-go. And though some have tried to argue with me over the years that abortion is the law of the land and that there really isn't anything that we can do, they're wrong. There is plenty that we can do. Uh, one is that the Supreme Court can overturn a previous decision by a Supreme Court anytime they want to. That is within their power. So the appointment of Supreme Court justices is always at stake in any election, and I always consider that whenever I vote. But the second thing you might not realize, and this affects all the other things we're voting for on the ballot other than just the presidential election, is that lower courts and states are constantly wrestling with this issue. In fact, since 2011, just in the last five years, get this, there have been 334 abortion restrictions enacted by states alone that have had a significant impact on the number of abortions, especially late-term abortions, which is up for grabs right now. And so it really is possible to make headway here. 
And though my list is not necessarily in order of importance, it really isn't, which is why you'll see bullet points on there and not numbers, I will tell you that there is a reason that this is on the top of my list. And that is it because sanctity of human life is preeminent in God's mind and especially what has happened in the last 43 years in this country that you and I live in. But then notice next on my list is the issue of the family. Now, I want to be very clear on something as I talk about the family right now. In a free and diverse American culture that is governed by what we call a representative democracy, I believe that all people have rights and that all people should have and deserve to have their rights protected, even if their lifestyle choice mitigates against what I might believe. And nobody should ever be persecuted for their private choices, even choices that I would consider not to collate with my Christian worldview. But having said this, I got to tell you guys, our country is in trouble when it comes to their view of the family. Unprecedented divorce rates, out-of-wedlock births, a redefinition of marriage, and sexual identity issues have all contributed to an erosion of what the Bible declares as God's view and God's best for the family. I mean, please understand this, guys. This is a biblical issue. God invented the family. From Genesis chapter 2 with the very first marriage between a man and a woman to Ephesians chapter 3 when God says that all fatherhood emanates from his fatherhood to Jesus' words on divorce in Matthew 19 to Paul's words on sexual identity in Romans 2. God cares deeply about his design for the family. And though sin can certainly make a mess of it, and some of us have experienced that, part of our job as responsible citizens in this country is to vie for what is best in the family, especially when we get a chance to have a say through voting. Listen to me, gang. This is not pushing our morality on other people. It's what a representative democracy is all about. It's what our founders wanted. It's for people to weigh in in the public arena on moral issues at times, cultural issues. That's what our country is about. And when we are asked and get a chance to vote, we should. And though we can't legislate our way out of all this mess, and even what issues to legislate is debatable, I personally do highly consider the family and the Bible's values here when I make the choices that I do in the voting booth. Enough said on that. And then a third issue that I consider is religious freedom. This one is very close to home for me. Uh, from the very founding of our country when various religious groups were looking for a land to practice their faith in <laughs> without fear of persecution and interference from the state, religious freedom has always been a high value for America. But as many of us know, in the past few decades, our culture has become increasingly secular. And so the temptation has been for our leaders to not value the freedoms that our founders envisioned when it comes to religion. In fact, just this week, as the Supreme Court reconvenes, one of the top cases that they're going to hear has to do with religious freedom. And over the last 20 years, there have been dozens if not hundreds of key court cases that have been argued in upper and lower courts that all affect the freedom on the religious level that our founders envisioned. 
In fact, this last May, I was on a trip, a week-long trip with Alan Sears, who's the head of Alliance Defending Freedom. And I got to have dinner with Alan every night on this trip that we were on together. And Alan's an attorney, and he has 2,000 allied attorneys associated with ADF. And at one point in dinner, at dinner, he showed me this brochure that listed all the cases that they've been arguing in lower and upper, upper courts, even over a dozen of them at the Supreme Court level having to do with religious freedom. And I got to tell you guys, I'm a pastor. I was stunned. I had no idea <laughs> all this stuff was going on and how much they're having to fight behind the scenes and little things and big, big things just to keep the freedom that we have for our faith alive and well in our increasingly secular culture. And some court justices have a high respect for these issues and there are some that seemingly don't. So once again, the appointment of court justices, even Supreme Court justices, is a huge issue in any election and these are the freedoms that are at stake. So look at this list so far because we're gonna move on right now. Sanctity of human life, family, religious freedom, are all issues in the form of values that the Bible talks about, and they are at least some of the values that your pastor considers when voting. But I told you earlier that this was not a complete list, and I warned you earlier that it gets complex because what some of you need to hear today is that God cares about other issues as well, and the Bible is clear on these issues also. In other words, please hear this. There are additional moral values that our current political climate has decided to make cultural issues, and so we need to consider these as well when casting our vote because they were moral issues in the Bible way before they became political issues in our current culture. So here's what I'm going to call the right side of my list, and that is strangers in the land, I'll explain that in a minute, racism and poverty and debt. Strangers in the land, racism and poverty or debt. Notice that I call this first one strangers in the land. I call this very respectfully and very endearingly, I call it this because this is what the Bible calls it. Here's the deal. In the Old Testament, Israel as a nation had clear borders. And if you've read the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament is about Israel protecting its borders. So a nation protecting its borders is not a new phenomenon, and it is seemingly something that God is for. At least he was for this for Israel. And Israel even had a pathway to citizenship for non-Jews in the Old Testament. I think of Rahab, think of Ruth, think of the Ninevites when Jonah went to them. They had a pathway for people to come into Israel as citizens. And that pathway was you had to submit to the Old Testament law. If you were a man, you had to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant but given those things, there's ample evidence that there was a provision for Gentiles to join Israel in the Old Testament. But even with this backdrop, now watch this, of border security and a pathway to citizenship, the Old Testament is additionally clear as, how, as, as how, to how Israel was to treat strangers in the land who happened to non-aggressively cross the border and had not become Jewish. 
In fact, look with me at a few of the passages in which this says this in very clear language. Be very open to this, gang. This is important for you and I today. Exodus 22, 21, God is speaking. He says, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then look at Deuteronomy 10, 19. Again, God is speaking. He says, so show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And then how about this one? Leviticus 19, verse 34. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Wow. Not wrong nor oppress them. Love the alien. Treat them as the native among you. Listen, gang, this is how tough, protective, bordered, thoroughly Jewish and unbending Israel was asked by God himself to treat strangers in the land. And please hear, I do not want to be misunderstood in this issue. This did not take away an iota of border security. Israel still had secure borders. And this didn't even suggest a lax pathway to citizenship. That was still in place. It's simply when there was a stranger in the land, this is how God wanted them treated. And so I am of the personal biblical opinion that most of the responses on both sides of the aisle to our current immigration problem we have in our country have yet to fully grasp and understand God's heart here. And I am not wading into the amnesty debate here. I truly am not. And I'm not even sure what the solution should be. I'm a pastor, not a politician. But here's what I am hoping for, and maybe this will cut through all of it for some of you. I'm just simply waiting for the kind of tone and tenor in this discussion that depicts God's heart. Amen? That's all I'm looking for. And whenever I hear discussions on this, on the news or whatever, I just hear such aggressiveness and such panic and, and quite frankly, at times, even racism and other things. And I just then go, whoa, slow down, stop. At the very least, we as Christians can say, let's have the kind of tone and tenor here that God's heart has here. Again, I don't know what all the answers are, but I'm looking for this. And I seriously consider this whenever I look at any candidate. And then notice a further cultural issue that stems again from a biblical value I hold, and that is racism. Racism. Guys, I gotta tell you, if there's one thing God abhors, it's racism. What is racism? Racism is this, it's classifying other groups of human beings based on ethnicity or skin color, and then treating them differently and badly based upon your classification. God makes it clear that he created all races of human beings in his image and that one is not better than the other. And to see it any other way goes against God. And if you see it any other way, you're going to be very miserable in heaven. I'll just tell you that right now. And our nation is in the midst of a severe racial problem. And listen closely, gang. Whether you might agree or disagree with a particular or individual scenario or event, whether it be Dallas, Charlotte, Cleveland, or anywhere else, that's not really the point. Please hear, I'm not making a statement on that. 
You might have a personal opinion on a particular event on what really happened there or what have you. That's not the issue. The point is, is that we have a slew of fellow human beings, even brothers and sisters in the Lord, who feel judged and mistreated for the color of their skin. And that's a problem. And again, some of you might be wanting to say, well, you know, but yeah, I'm not racist, I'm this way. They feel that way. And as compassionate Christians, you and I must, we must take note of that. Imagine if your daughter, your grown daughter came to you one day and said, Dad, I'm in therapy and I'm in therapy because I don't feel like you and your mom, you and mom ever really loved me. Now, one of your responses could be, you got to be kidding me, kid. We, we gave you this. We loved you this way and, and tried to defend yourself. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that would help? Yes or no? No, because it's what your daughter is feeling. And whether her feelings are based on reality or not, what have you, that ain't your concern. Your concern is that your daughter whom you love does not feel love from you. And you're going to be heaven bent on getting to the bottom of that one and doing everything you can to show her that you love her. And that's what God asks us to do when it comes to people in this world who feel disenfranchised. Racial healing needs to happen in our country. And whoever is the next president is going to have to deal with this and hopefully deal with it by bringing healing and unity. And you and I, by the way, as a church, have some things that we can do as well to bring healing. And we're going to talk about this as a church in the very near future. And then a sixth and final issue on my list, but certainly not the least important, is what I'm going to call poverty slash debt. And though this is a very complex issue in our huge nation, here's what I believe Christians need to, at minimum, understand and wrestle with. One, there are over 300 passages, did you know this? 300 passages in the Bible that talk about the poor and justice and God's concern and care here. And so at the very least, you and I should always have, and many of you know this, those with physical and tangible needs on our hearts and minds, and even with the help of our pocketbooks, because it's part of following Jesus and caring for those not as fortunate as us in, in, in a lost world. And so when I vote, I got to tell you, I do consider a candidate's plan to address those in need in our culture and what a candidate says that they will do to address poverty in our nation. This is an important issue for each one of us. But then a second thing under this sixth issue on my list that I believe we need to wrestle with, and believe it or not, watch this, this collates with poverty, is a candidate's overall economic plan, especially as of late, how to deal with escalating and out of control national debt that as of yesterday when I checked it is at $19.6 trillion. And believe it or not, the two go together, poverty and national debt, and it's not difficult to understand. Only a strong national economy has the resources to care for its poor. You ever traveled to a third world country? I have. They don't even have the resources to think about how to care for their poor. Only first world countries have the option and the liberty to do that. And America is blessed. And so I do care what a candidate's economic plan is, especially a plan to protect wealth creation and deal with national debt. And then I hope that in our strength, in fact, we better, in our strength, care for those in need. I need to hear that as well. So look at this list. 
sanctity of human life, family, religious freedom, strangers in the land, racism, poverty and debt. Let me ask you a lead-in question. Is this a complete and thorough list, yes or no? No, this is my list. Given my best shot as somebody who loves God, loves you, loves my country, and loves God's word as to what I think are the values, some of them, that we need to consider. But your list might be different. And there are many other things that matter. Crime and drugs, foreign policy, gender equality, urbanization, education, just to name a few. And so maybe your list will look subtly different than mine, and that's okay. But here's what I want to challenge you with. And I don't say this arrogantly. I say this with all the humility I can muster up. I can defend each and every one of these things on my list as biblical values that God cares about and is revealed in his word. In other words, these are not just things that I want to see happen. These are not personal preferences. They are things that I can show that God cares about and wants his people to care about. And so when you go to make your own list, my only encouragement, even caution to you, is to make sure it is biblical, make sure it is thoughtful as to what you truly believe your creator and your redeemer has declared. Now, one last word, one last scripture, one last story, and we're done. Here's my last word. The vast majority of Americans polled and the experts who chime in seem to all agree that this year is unique in that we have two candidates that have, to call it mildly, some major character flaws that nobody is excited about. And this past weekend's revelations have cemented that home to us once again. And it's true and everybody knows it. And listen, gang, it's why it is so tough. It's why it's tough for some Democrats to go with the usual Democratic flow. It's why it's tough for some Republicans to go with the usual Republican flow. And I smile at this. Even independents are very hard to pin down, as if they're ever easy to pin down. But this year, they're especially hard to pin down. Nobody knows where this is going. And I got to tell you, here's what your pastor is doing. And I say this with so much passion and humility. I am praying every day and I am wrestling with the Lord over these issues myself. I am. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for our country. I'm praying for me. I'm praying many times just the Lord's Prayer. You ever read the Lord's Prayer? (laughs) Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's for this reason, when Schrader emailed me yesterday and said, is what's going to happen recently going to change your sermon? Now you can see, no, it doesn't change my sermon at all. I'll tell you why. I've never been more glad, given the wacko political culture that we live in right now, I've never been more glad and proud to be a values voter. I really haven't. I'm glad that I'm driven by biblical values that though they might not always answer all my questions, they at the very least provide for me a platform, now watch this, on how to pray and even how to decide. Honestly, I know we don't always say value voting booth. We don't use booths anymore, I think. I mean, again, I've been voting since the early 80s, but, but I still picture the booth. I, I, I honestly, ever since I got saved, I just picture myself walking in that booth, and I don't, I don't literally carry this book. It's now on my phone anyways, but I, 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 I walk into the booth, and I'm telling you, this thing is so close to my chest. And, and again, I, I vote in line with what I believe the Lord 
has laid upon my heart and my mind. I, I hope the Bible's values are in your heart as well. We're going to actually pray about this as a church. Uh, and we're meeting a week from Wednesday uh, here in the sanctuary, I think, or one of the places here on Shea. And I'll be leading us in a time of prayer for our nation. I hope you can make it. It's Wednesday, October 19th. We want to pray together as a church for our nation, for our church, and for ourselves. Now, I mentioned one scripture. No matter what happens this fall, here's our theme verse as a church. It's Romans 15, verses 5 through 7. Now, watch this. It transcends any and all politics, and it says this. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Some of you are going to be tempted to write me and say, you know, you called this message unity and you talked about values for 35 minutes. You're right. But the message I want to leave you with is a message of unity, which is why I called it unity. Uh, just real quick didactic moment. Look at this, this, this passage here. This is a fascinating passage. It, you're tempted to think that it means that we all need to think together because it says be of the same mind with one accord and one voice. Eh, doesn't mean that. Romans 14 is all about gray areas and how there's diversity in the church and one might have freedom here and one might have freedom here. And so it isn't about that here. It's not saying that we all have to agree on the same thing. Notice very clearly what it says. Be of the same mind according to Christ Jesus. With one voice and in one accord, Christ. So what it's saying here is that even when we don't agree, even if you disagree with half or part or all of my list here today, here's the bottom line. You and I are united in Jesus Christ, amen? And we cannot let anything get in the way of that, especially something as silly as politics, ever. And part of my job as your pastor, and I feel very passionate about this as you can tell, is that we need to stay together because I think there might be some rough waters coming in our culture. And, and when rough waters have hit cultures, you know what church history shows us? That the church bands together and they remain strong. But they're not banding together even over issues. They're banding together over Jesus. You guys love Jesus. I said this to you before, and I don't mean it to be an insult. I, I mean it really endearingly. When I got saved, one of the first things that hit me is that if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be friends with most of you. And again, I don't mean that as an insult. I don't think you would be friends with me because our relationship is not based on affinity. Our relationship, our love for each other stems from our shared love for Jesus Christ. And I can tell you that because you know and love Jesus, I put up with an awful lot in your life. <laughs> and you put up with an awful lot in me because our unity is in Jesus and that's what's going to bind us together as a church moving forward. Last story, and we're done. I was in Tucson speaking on Friday, and uh, I was asked to speak there, even though I didn't have the time because of all my schedule this week. I was asked to speak by a dear friend at his large ministry, and he asked me to speak on my favorite subject, grace. And I went down there, and I do got to tell you, I hit it out of the park when it came to speaking on grace. I, it's my favorite subject. I just, wow, I, I felt really good about the message. But I told the crowd, I said, I'm heading right back up to my home office in Scottsdale because I got to talk about this this weekend. And as I was heading out of this nice hotel, a gal stopped me. 
who uh, is from our church, and I know her and her husband fairly well, and uh, she said, do you have a few minutes? And obviously, I, I said, sure, and, and we went off to the side, and, and she shared, shared something very hard for me to hear, and she was very humble about it. She said, I'm, I'm nervous about this. I'm, 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 I'm literally trembling in, in, in approaching you about this. I said, it's okay. It's okay. And she said, um, I know what you're going to talk about this weekend. I need to let you know that four years ago when you talked about what you did, it really messed up our family. It hurt us. It confused us. We, we could not have disagreed with you more on some things. And uh, we're still recovering from it four years later. I thought, wow, <laughs> that's so hard for me to hear. And I, I responded to her and said to her, you know, and, and she even said at one point, she said, you know, we, we've been in Scottsdale Bible a long time. We'd never thought about leaving. But, you know, um, initially we just thought about leaving and, uh, and, and, and we didn't. But I just want to let you know that as you're going into this weekend. So I was driving back from Tucson. I thought to myself, you know, it's kind of like letting a surgeon know right before he's going to surgery that his last surgery really sucked. And, you know, I just thought... <laughs> It's just so hard because, you know, I'm, I'm trying so hard to, to but I'm human, I'm, 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 I'm normal, and I'm praying. I, I just, the Bible says, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. So I'm praying, what's that road? Is it I-10, I-17, whatever it is coming from Tucson? And I'm praying the whole way down. And, and I'm really kind of taking it hard, having a little bit of a pity party and, you know, um, you know, just all the things going on in my heart and mind. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but when you pray sometimes, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a thought comes to you. I tend to think through the eyes of faith, that's probably from the Lord. <laughs> I know a social psychologist would say, now that was just neurons firing, and da, 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 but I tend to think it's from the Lord. And as I was driving on the freeway, it's like a bolt of lightning. I mean, the closest thing to an audible voice I've had, I'm, I'm talking to God, and all of a sudden, in my mind, I hear these words, but Jamie, they didn't leave. They disagreed with you. They even felt hurt by you. But don't see it any other way. She's still here four years later to tell you, don't screw up this weekend because they're still here. And as I walk through my door, my wife's away this weekend, so I've been alone all weekend, which I think was a God thing. As I walk through the door and let the dogs out, I was really in one of these sober, smile on my face, thanking God's, thanking the Lord, for his church and his people, that even if somebody might disagree with me, even on things like this, there's at least some of them saying, but I ain't going anywhere. We share Jesus, we share a common love for each other, and our unity is precious. And I really was struck by that. And I was actually thankful for that event because I think that might have been of the Lord. Initially, I thought our timing was awful, but then I thought, no, I think that was of the Lord because it gives a great closing illustration to my message and to what you and I need to take with us. Here's what I need you guys to know, and I can't say this more affectionately than I want to say it right now. I love you guys. I have never felt more secure and wonderful in being part of a church than I do right now with where our culture is. I think that the strength of our church, again, it's kind of boring when I say it this way, but I said earlier that we are a large, stable, multi-generational church. Some of you are going, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. Nah, it ain't. And most of you aren't very exciting, but I will tell you this. <laughs> I'm not very exciting. I will tell you this, there's strength in numbers. There's strength in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within. There is strength whenever we band together in Jesus' name. 
And no matter where our culture is, our church stands strong. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, yep, you can clap, I guess. <laughs> Let me, uh, yeah, thanks. Let me uh, pray for us. God, I do thank you. I hope that clapping's for you. I hope that clapping, Lord, is for our gratefulness for 55 years of your hand upon this place for 2,000 years with your hand upon the universal church in which Jesus said the gates of hell cannot even prevail against her. And so, Father, I pray that as we uh, continue to band together as a church, as we give some cogent thought to the values that we would take into November uh, as ones who get a say, as we then give cogent and passionate thought to our church and the unity that we have in Jesus, God, give us wisdom. Give us unity. Bless us as your people, we pray, that we might be very close to you and salt and light to this culture that so desperately needs you. That's my prayer, and I pray it in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.